Well, if you have your Bibles, turn again with me to the letter of 1 Peter. We now find ourselves in chapter 4. And today we are going to look at four verses from chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. And I'll begin reading with verse 1 to provide some context from last week. Remember, these are the words of the Lord. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased or finished from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on this time. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is holy and pure and able to lead us into all righteousness. No matter what sin any in here have dealt with this week or all throughout their lives, your word is able to make us wise unto salvation. And your word is able to sanctify each of us into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. This, we plead with you, would be what happens this morning. That if there are hearts darkened in lostness here this morning, that they would be awakened to new life. And if there are hearts here this morning weighed down and burdened with sins, you would give them the courage to cast off those sins, to repent and walk in the newness of life that you have already bought for them. I pray that you would help me as I preach and you would help your people, as they hear, that we would all be conformed together into the image of your Son. We ask this, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, the early Protestant church conceptualized the whole body of Christ throughout the ages in two different categories, or what they called states. These are known as the church triumphant and the church militant. The church triumphant is all believers who have died and received what is called the beatific vision, that is the state of perfection when one finally sees the Lord and is glorified. The church militant is made up of Christians today on earth who are at war with the world, the flesh, and the devil. They are militant in that they live in a state of conflict with all that is opposed to Christ and His kingdom. Well, the entire letter of 1 Peter is, in a sense, a handbook for the church militant. It is a field guide of resources and skills for things like keeping organized regiments, spiritual weapons handling techniques, 
tactics for managing hostile environments, utilization of the supernatural gifts of your troop, medical care for sick souls, and a game plan to win the world for King Jesus. It's all there. Last week, we saw that martial language was front and center. Peter said, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. That's from verse 1 of chapter 4. If the bride of Jesus is going to maintain her purity, guard her husband's honor, and keep her lamp burning until his return, she is going to have to be, we might say, locked and loaded. The days of dance parties and flirting with the power baristas of the world are over. She cannot go back. She is set apart. God himself has set her apart for his son. And she should not be ashamed to let her glory shine. Her glory shines most brilliantly in the midst of intense darkness. During the Mexican-American War, Stonewall Jackson was asked if he had ever been afraid in a battle. His response is the response of anyone who is truly in the church militant. Stonewall said, Yes, I have been afraid. I have been afraid that the battle would not be hot enough for me to distinguish myself. Well, church, this is what God is calling us to. He is calling us to a fight where we will be purified, sanctified, and conformed into the image of His Son. He is calling us to put our neck on the line, to put the skin in the game, and to be like Jesus and win the world for our Savior. And this is exactly what Jesus taught us to do. Jesus Christ lived for righteousness and He suffered for it because... He was fully convinced of glory. He was fully convinced of the glory that was ahead of him. And any Christian who does the same, any Christian who arms themselves with that same kind of thinking is walking around with an armed mind, an armed personality. They're in the open carry position. It's on their hips. A resolved Christian, as we said last week, is a weaponized Christian. According to the Apostle Peter, this practice and habit of preparedness has a purpose. Today he reveals to us what that purpose is. He says that we will live the rest of our days for the will of God. And the reason for readiness is given. Peter, in a sense, in today's text says, You're an adult now, so act like one. You've grown up. The time for doing kid-like things is over. You're not a part of that anymore. It's time to act your age. I don't know if you remember your parents ever telling you when you were younger to act your age. I remember frequently hearing that. Um, Chris, you're too old to be cleaning the dog's toothbrush, or excuse me, the dog's teeth with uh, your father's toothbrush. Um, yes, son, I know that you always put it back when you're done, um, but it's time to grow up. <laughs> well, there are two different elements to growing up, Peter says here in verse 3 of chapter 4. Um, the two different elements of our growing up have to do with time and have to do with the people that we belong to. Time and the people that we belong to. Peter says that the time is sufficient for doing what the Gentiles do. You might think of this in terms of a, maybe a completion of time. Time is up. The clock is struck. 
The buzzer sounded. You've run out of time. The time has expired. That plane left the airport a long time ago. You've run out of minutes on that plan. Winnie the Pooh may have once said, there's always time for a smackerel of honey. However, we should respond by saying, silly old bear, though there may be time for a smackerel of honey, I have no time left for sin. You might also think of this in terms of filling up of time. When Peter says the time is sufficient for doing what the Gentiles do, he might be speaking to, we've already filled up the bank of sin that we need to in this life. We should be done with it. That time is over. Your sin needs to stop because you already filled your timesheet with enough sin. One of the truest marks of grace in a person's life is his or her remorse over past sins. Can you think of anything more horrible, church, than sitting down in a dark room and having someone read to you at each moment of your childhood and into adolescence and even into adulthood the moments where you actively sinned against God? What if they were to put that on a projector screen and they played it back to you and you were forced to watch it. What if there was a way to include your sinful thoughts and motives back in that playback? I cannot think of anything more horrible. Matthew Henry says, when a man is truly converted, it is a very grievous thing for him to think how the time past of his life has been spent. The hazard he has run so many years, the mischief he has done to others, the dishonor done to God and the loss he has sustained are very afflicting to him. Well, whether you see Peter saying that our time is up, we've completed our time, or we've filled up our time, remember what I said last week about abiding in Christ. There are three elements. You must be in a certain place, in a certain way, for a certain time. Abiding takes time and so does sin. In fact, if you're willing to receive it, beloved, sin merely expresses an abiding in something other than Christ. Sin merely expresses an abiding in something other than Christ. Peter says that there's already been enough time for sin. So how is it that Christians still make so much time for sin? We don't schedule sin into our calendar. It's more subtle than that. But more often than not, we make time for it by putting ourselves in unfavorable matchups with it. Men might take their whole family to a public pool or a public beach. Women might default their free time away from the children and always choose to go shopping. Parents regularly allow a break from parenting with some unsupervised TV time for their children. Now, I'll say this. Most of you just heard me say that it was sinful to go to a public beach or a public pool, or that it's sinful for women to go shopping, or that it's sinful for your kids to watch Disney movies, none of which I said. The distinction is that we most often think of sin in terms of a list of don'ts and actions that we cannot do. But we need to begin to think of sin as an appetite that we feed, as a beast that lives inside that wants to take over and yet we are more than conquerors over it. 
We are the rulers over our appetites. And I ask you, beloved, what are those appetites? What is it that your flesh craves? Don't put yourself in an unfavorable matchup with the things that your flesh demands. Don't feed that beast. Well, I mentioned to you that were two things that Peter said we've done enough of. We've done enough of spending time with our sin. We've also got a different identity now that we're in Christ. You might even say we have a different nationality. The ESV translates the Greek word ethnos as Gentiles. I actually prefer the translations that say nations. So your translation might read something like, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the nations do. All those that are outside of Christ, the time's up for doing what they are still doing, what is ongoing in their lives. So there's no more time for doing what the nations do. Notice how Peter doesn't shrink back from an us versus them kind of argument. They do wicked things. And you don't have time for that kind of wickedness anymore. That's what they do. You can't do that anymore because you aren't one of them anymore. This kind of talk has to do with identity. And most Christians are ashamed of the gift of God of a new nationality that they now hold. Most Christians inwardly are kind of ashamed of that. Jesus wouldn't want us to think this way. I mean, we're all sinners, right? Didn't Jesus teach in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector that we should beat our chests and say to ourselves that we're sinners? Oh, woe is me. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. Over and over again. First, let me say this. We cannot take any credit for our salvation. Nobody is arguing for an arrogance about the place where a Christian stands. The cornerstone of the church is all Christ. And for us... It's all of His grace. The only thing that you added to your salvation was the sin that made it necessary. But listen to the Apostle Paul from Colossians chapter 1. He, that is God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Nationality change. Two completely different realms. Domain of darkness transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. I don't know how you're supposed to read that verse and in Christ not get really excited about that realm change. That's fantastic. That's amazing. How can we not celebrate that our deliverance from sin is so complete? We no longer have to continually identify with it. The worm theology, you've heard before, oh, I'm a worm, I'm a worm, I'm a worm, on and on. It proves to be too shallow, and full of often false humility. By the way, the worm ideology, telling yourself over and over again, I'm I'm a sinner, I'm just a sinner, I'm a sinner, over and over again, that's what the nations want. They want you to continue to identify with them. That's exactly why we're going to get to a place here in just a minute where they're shocked that you don't join them in doing what they do. They want you to identify with what they still do. They want you to scream, I am still in my sins. But bride of Christ, hear me now, you aren't a refugee. 
you don't just have a green card. You are not just a citizen of heaven, though you are that. But you are sons and daughters of His majesty, King Jesus. Paul says in Ephesians 2, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And so when we look at this vice list that Paul's gonna, or that Peter's going to give us, it should seem very foreign to us to want to identify in any way with any of these sins. Look at this list that he says. He mentions first sensuality. The Greek word is aselgeia, and it, from the word meaning, or the a meaning a negative, and zelgai is a, a city near Pisidia that was known for strict discipline. The nations have no self-control, no discipline. They're given to excess and shamefacedness. Christians are to be masters first of themselves. I've mentioned before the Latin proverb, vincit qui si vincit, which means he conquers who conquers himself. He conquers who conquers himself. Theist, and I think trending Christian, Jordan Peterson says that strangely enough, competency and hostility are linked. Here's what he means. If you are not a formidable force, Peterson says, there's no morality in your self-control. If you're incapable of violence, not being violent is not a virtue. People who teach martial arts know this full well. If you learn the martial arts, you learn to be dangerous, but simultaneously, you learn to control it. Life is a very difficult process, and you're not prepared for it unless you have the capacity to be dangerous. Arm yourselves with the same kind of thinking. That's exactly what Peter's talking about. By the way, Peterson often makes these really bland statements about what people today, particularly men, can do to be dangerous. He says things like, get up on time, brush your teeth, make your bed, do your own laundry. And if there's a Christian man who's going to read through this and say, um, living in sensuality, yeah, I'm pretty good with that. But you can't get up on time. You can't brush your teeth. You can't make your bed. You can't handle your business. We got a problem. We got a problem. Men who are dangerous, and women for that matter, are self-disciplined, self-ruled people. We Christians ought to have this as part of who we are, as part of our very identity. The second word that Peter mentions is either passions or maybe lusts in your translations, epithumii, and this has to do with cravings. The nations have no self-restraint or shamefacedness, so God gives them over to, in Romans 1, what? The lusts of their hearts to impurity. That's the exact same Greek word. Men kiss men, and women kiss women, and their natural desires for sex turn into an incessant requirement for more. They become controlled by their wantonness and they dress up in genitals costumes and go to parades, we think, merely to mock Christians. 
But in reality, it's because they're imprisoned by what they crave. They're bowing to that which they must serve. Young men, I mentioned before in a sermon that the essence of manliness is an internal locus of control. That's in opposition to an external locus of control. That is to say that real masculinity is characterized by faithfulness or fidelity to God internally, which flows outward, rather than slavery to our desires, those things outside of us that we then turn and serve and bow ourselves before. I would ask the young men in this church, teenage boys in Christ, what controls you, young brothers? Is it the next scroll of Twitter? Is it the next hangout with the boys? Your next video game fix? The next look at that girl? Or is it every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? Young ladies, the kind of man you want to wind up with should be governed entirely by his walk with God. The guy who looks good yet lacks a real Christocentric gravity to him is an insult to himself and girls a waste of your time. Don't even be tempted by a man whose world revolves around himself or sports or friends and especially don't be associated with a man whose world revolves around you, ladies. You don't want it. You do not want it. The only thing that will hold the two of you together forever principally is his devotion to Jesus. His devotion to Jesus. The rest of the words Peter lists after sensuality and passions all flow from these first two. They're all outworkings of these first two. Drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. If you have no self-control and you're given again and again and again to your cravings and your desires, what kind of person do you turn into? My body, my choice. My body, my choice. This last week, I started listening to Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. For those of you who haven't read the book, it's a story of a dystopian future where all humanity is genetically engineered from conception in industrial laboratories and conditioned to fit into certain class identities. They call these alphas, betas, deltas, gammas, and then the lowest class being the epsilons. Each infant, from the moment that it's conceived in the lab, is brainwashed through sleep teaching, they call it hypnopedia, to think and behave in very strict ways. This is how that one world order controls people, is through chemicals and this brainwashing technique. It is the real atheistic ideal. Christian virtues are considered vices. Marriage is not even a category because, after all, everyone belongs to everyone else, as the motto goes. With all the one world state controls over mankind, what's interesting about this book, and I find it fascinating, great that Huxley points this out. With all of the one world state controls over mankind, this strict, rigid discipline that they've ingrained in people's brains... All people do is drink, drugs, go to parties, 
have daily promiscuous sex and the church worship services in this global community are essentially 12-person orgies. And this is all approved and celebrated. This is the identity at its core of who Peter calls here the nations, the Gentiles. Let them go. No common grace to hold them back. What's going to happen? We're going to wind up right here. And it really feels like we're headed in that direction. Christians, however, are to have no part in it because there's no time left for it. We've already filled up that timesheet. We've already filled up that time card. Well, in verses 4 and 5, Peter goes on to say that with respect to us not joining them in this idolatry, they're surprised, they're shocked. And then they malign us. One of the things that makes Christians today feel a little light in the loafers, you might say, is the reaction that we know we're going to get from the nations. Peter says that they're shocked. He even uses a play on words, a flood of debauchery. Now he's just gotten finished talking about the flood, hearken back. Gary Tuckman, who was the news anchor from CNN, who slandered our abortion mill team last week for ministering at Clinch, was genuinely shocked in the CNN video that they released that we were there harassing women and would not advocate for the rights of women, but instead that we were trying to stop them from murdering their children. We can't let this surprise shake us. I don't know how many of y'all have had a chance to watch the CNN short, but it's, it's hard not to see that and be surprised that they're so shocked at our righteous behavior at our wanting to advocate. How could somebody be so far gone? How could they be so debased that they can't see that this is a child? And Christians get a little weak when we say, like, am I doing the right thing? I don't want to offend people. And the softness settles in. We lose our resolve. We lose our courage. Can I ask you, though, what were you like before Christ came and saved you? Did you have dark thoughts? Were you hopeless and fearful? Did you chase your passions aimlessly, always looking for the next fix? Did you act like a tyrant with anger and hatefulness because you had no self-control and you hated God and everyone, and even if you were willing to admit it, you hated yourself? You ruled over your husband, perhaps with an iron fist, though you hated that you did and you knew that other women saw it and thought less of you for it. You prized yourself on how much control you had in keeping others out of your secret pornography addiction, though you couldn't control that addiction and always felt like a loser for doing it, especially when you started looking for homosexuality. But there was no hope. And then Jesus walked by and saw you wallowing in the blood of the abortion your sin performed on you and took pity on you and said, live. What happened in that moment? Well, the first thing that happened is you finally saw your sin for what it is. Ugly, disgusting, something that should be forever hated. By the way, this is called conviction. And it just means to see your sin 
the way that God sees your sin, with hatred. And then, after the conviction, you turned away from following your sin. This is called repentance. Though you didn't understand how it would all work out, instead of walking towards sin, you began to walk towards Christ. Seeing that He alone was the only hope given to you in life to save you from death. This is called faith. And for anyone here who has never heard that story, this is what this church is all about. We are about this series of events that happens in the human life through the preaching of the crucified and risen Savior, Jesus Christ, because anyone who finds that their sin is ugly and anyone who in repentance turns from that sin and turns to Christ and anyone by faith, as we read in the catechism this morning, lays hold of Christ, placing all of their hope and their trust in that Christ, that person is a new creation in Christ Jesus. No longer wallowing in the blood of the sin abortion that happened in their life, but walking in newness of life. But the nations don't join us. Instead, they're surprised when we don't join them, and they malign or lash out or call us names or falsely accuse or slander or strike or maim or even kill. And do we really expect that it would be otherwise? Brethren, Peter says, arm yourselves with the same kind of thinking. And this includes being wise as serpents and harmless as doves. For example, if you've walked with Christ for any length of time and dared to share Him, you may have heard that your sharing of Christ is just your exercising of your white privilege, even for my brothers or sisters in this room who are not from their birth ethnically Caucasian. You still have white privilege. And you just need to be ready for this. Actually, uh, if, if you're getting ready to be assaulted by them from the Word of God, you're still exercising white privilege. Ah, we can't win. And that's the whole point. These critical theory tools, the intersectional categories, just create a class of justified individuals apart from Christ so that those who are justified lose any high ground for saying, wait a sec, but God said. That's the whole point of this game. So they throw the sweeping generalization fallacy at you. Well, you've got white privilege because apparently there's this mass of people who happen to be a certain color and that color affects the way that they behave. So sweeping generalization. And, and this sort of thing, beloved, should not even stick with us for a minute. How would you respond to somebody? Well, I would respond to them by telling them that you are genuinely thankful for every privilege that God has given you and that you intend to use every privilege that He's given to you to maximize His glory and then walk away. I've heard this week that now pro-life people are no longer being called pro-life people because the liberals want the pro-life term. They want to say, well, we're really pro-life. You all are just pro-birth. 
You're just pro getting that baby to be born, but we're really pro-life because what we want is to help that woman all the way through, even on into old age. We want to make sure that she's going to be cared for in every area of life. So we're the pro-life ones. You're just pro-birth. I would respond by saying that every day 2,400 babies are killed in abortion. Let me say that again. Every day, 2,400 babies are killed every day in abortion. If you don't care about them, please don't call yourself pro-life. The number of, uh, the number of people who get up in arms about abortion and the number of people that get up in arms about animal cruelty are wildly disproportionate. Jeremy mentioned to me, he saw a Facebook post this last week from the Anderson County government that there was a, 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 a county commission meeting and it was a very heavily attended meeting. Lots of people from the community came out to a county commission meeting where people oftentimes wouldn't attend so heavily. They came out because they found out that the animal shelters in the area were overcrowded and were having to euthanize animals to make space for other animals that were coming in. That was the only option that they had. These people came out to advocate for the lives of these animals in droves before their county government. And Christians show up to church every week in Anderson County and in many other counties in the area and all over the world and praise Jesus and raise our hands and we would never set foot in a county commission meeting to advocate for the lives of the unborn. We do have to ask ourselves a question. Are we really pro-life? Are we really pro-life? If we think that the accusations are tough now, I'd like you to consider the accusations that may come against the church in a post-Roe v. Wade world. If this court decision, and by the way, that's all it is. It's a court decision. It is not a law, is overturned, and the abortion question is turned back over to the states, the maligning level is going to go way, way up. They're already getting ready for this. The summer of rage, the summer of wrath, whatever they're calling it. Beloved, I would advocate, I would encourage that if Roe v. Wade is overturned, one of the first things our church do is celebrate publicly and unashamedly that Roe v. Wade is overturned. I would say we need to meet somewhere in Clinton and we need to throw a party. We need to sing some psalms. We need to praise Jesus. We need to invite other churches in the area to join us because we are not going to be ashamed that in our lifetimes, and most of us all of our lives, it has been legal to murder a child in this country. In our lifetimes, God could overturn this wicked court decision. We need to celebrate. In addition to that, women are going to have to make the drive up to the Bristol, Virginia murder mill because Virginia does not have a trigger law. And any potential ministry that we do there will be far more difficult to deal with than what we've dealt with in Knoxville. We've avoided jail time this far, but I don't think it's likely that we can expect the same treatment from the authorities there, especially in a post-Roe world. In addition, our ministry to students at UT is going to become even more crucial. 
We have to be about the business of changing hearts and minds, but that is going to be harder because of all the animosity and the anger and the frustration of the nations who are shocked that we will not join them in the same flood of debauchery. Assaults are incoming, but Peter says in verse 5, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. But justice will be done. One of the main reasons the West today is abandoning Christian legal practices in favor of a guilty until proven innocent model is that the secular universe has no final or cosmic justice. There's no end of the road and then we'll have it all settled. We only have a limited amount of time. We've got to settle it now. So let's go ahead and put anybody on the chopping block that we might suspect. And if we get it wrong, whoops, we made a mistake. But let's not let anything go unpunished. In this view, by the way, Hitler got off clean because he committed suicide and didn't have to stand for his crimes. But the armed Christian doesn't even flinch at the injustice that is done or might be done to him because we know that justice will ultimately be done. All the wicked will turn in the account of their life's management on the last day. Jesus is currently seated at the right hand of the Father and He is ready, even now, that's what the text says, ready to judge the living and the dead. This is not an encouragement for us, beloved, to grit our teeth and get vindictive. Yeah, they're going to get it one day. We will have justice and that should be enough for us. But remember, we will have justice if we are in Christ and persevere to the end. Peter said it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And if a professor of Christ falls away and falls back in with the nations and forsakes his God, as Demas seems to have in the New Testament, he too will one day come before Christ who is ready to judge the quick and the dead. And he too will be judged unworthy of eternal life. God shows no partiality. Well, finally, Peter concludes the reading that we're going to cover this morning with what seems to be a, an obscure passage. He says, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. This seems like a strange argument. The gospel was preached to the dead, or that's the way it sounds in English anyway. There's a lengthy dialogue of what Peter is actually talking about here, and I will spare you that this morning. There are two possible interpretations. Peter spoke of those who are spiritually dead, though he nowhere talks in the New Testament of people that way. So, gospel proclamation was made to people who are dead in their trespasses and sins, but actually still living. But Peter doesn't talk about death that way. Another option is that Peter spoke of a second chance for repentance, a view nowhere taught in the Bible and quite contrary to that of the whole canon. It also would make no sense in his context to be talking about suffering for righteousness, as we've mentioned before, and then to have, oh, but you'll have a second chance 
to repent. I think this verse answers a likely objection and puts a conclusive victorious period on Peter's argument since verse 1. In this world, the judgment of men currently reigns. How is a believer supposed to get justice? They are often persecuted, slandered, maligned, or even killed for their faith. But don't you understand that the gospel was preached to those who died and their lives were hidden with Christ in God? They may have suffered and been killed under the hands of sinful men, just as Jesus was back in chapter 3, verse 18. Yet, they were, as their Savior was, made alive in the Spirit. In other words, beloved, they didn't lose their reward. It is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. The Christian Standard Bible, the Holman Christian Standard, the NIV and the New Living translations all add the word now to the text to point to what Peter was referring to here. So the text would say, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. They've added that to help you understand what Peter's likely referring to here. Listen to the Amplified Bible. For this is why the good news of salvation was preached in their lifetimes even to those who are dead, that though they were judged in the flesh as men are, they may live in the Spirit according to the will and purpose of God. Now, I'm going to take a risk here with lots of qualifications. And I'm going to read to you from one of the apocryphal writings. These books were written largely between the time of the close of the Old Testament canon and before the coming of Christ. They were rejected by the apostles, the early church, and the foundational councils. They are not inspired. Rome didn't even consider them inspired until 1546. And as such are not to be compared or equated with Scripture. They teach many heretical things, and I am not encouraging the reading of them, though it is not a sin for a discerning and wise person to do so. But a broken clock is right twice a day, and this excerpt from the Wisdom of Solomon does describe pretty well what Peter is getting at here. It says, But the souls of the righteous are in the hand of God, and no torment will ever touch them. In the eyes of the foolish they seemed to have died, and their departure was thought to be a disaster. And they're going from us to be their destruction but they are at peace. For though in the sight of others they were punished, their hope is full of immortality. Having been disciplined a little, they will receive great good because God tested them and found them worthy of Himself. Like gold in the furnace, He tried them, and like a sacrificial burnt offering, He accepted them. So, beloved, here you are, at the end of another long week and your sins make you feel like you really shouldn't even be here this morning. You don't feel like you belong in church, certainly not a part of any church militant. You don't feel like you've really given up on your sin. You can't understand how Peter can talk about the mortification of your sin the way that he does. 
so resolutely, so done with, so complete. In your life, it seems like sin is always the one on the top rope. One of my favorite Sovereign Grace music songs, uh, songs has this lyric. It says, I have a shelter in the storm when all my sins accuse me. Though justice charges me with guilt, your grace will not refuse me. Church, in Christ Jesus, you live in a state of irrefusable grace. God wouldn't withhold it from you and you are unable to reject it. How many things work together for the good of those who love God? All things. Have you had enough time sinning? Then repent, receive God's grace, and join the church militant. Sign up, enlist, expect to be put on the front lines. Start disciplining yourself for the sake of godliness. Give yourself as a living sacrifice and believe that God will honor your resolve. It is not a sin to think, nay I say, to believe, to be sure of that God will reward you. Believe, beloved. Have faith, for the Word of God teaches us. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who diligently seek Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that though we live in a world filled with darkness... Though we live in a world filled with the enemies of God who are shocked when we do not join in their revelry. Though we live in a time of our lives where we have had enough time sinning, we no longer belong to the people who are given over to their sin. Lord, we still find ourselves giving into our cravings and our appetites. We so find ourselves leaving that armament at home and walking in obedience to that which is not our master anymore. Father, would you forgive us and would you empower your people through the Holy Spirit to turn from these individual sins, any that they may be considering even right now, and to turn to Christ to look to Christ and be armed as He was with a conviction that those who live for righteousness and suffer will be rewarded. That we will one day receive our final reward and all the blessings that come along with it. Father, give your church courage. Help us to have a backbone. I pray that the church of God stands so bright that the bride of Christ would be so resolute that you would make such a distinction in our day. Not just between us and the nations, but between the true church and that which calls itself the church, but is not, but is a den of Satan. Please, Lord, help us not to be ashamed when many turn away from you, but to stay resolute to keep our eyes on Christ. Make us like Jesus. We pray these things in His name.
Amen. Amen. Well, beloved, we are now going to get ready for lunch as we usually do. During lunch, as you know, we are going to take communion together. At Christ the King, we practice what is called close communion. That is different from closed or open communion. It means you got to be close. And if you're not sure what close means, there's a little blurb on the back of your bulletin you can read about. And if you have questions about what that means, you can come talk to uh, Jeremy, Daniel, or myself. And we'd be glad to give you some more information about how we practice communion at Christ the King. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God bless you, beloved. You're dismissed.